I can still take my instrument out in my bedroom and just play whatever I want for me. And it still, to this day, has some healing quality to it that keeps me coming back. Hello, everyone. This is Creative Dirt, a podcast and community for anyone who wants to live a more creative life or learn what that even is. Today, we're talking about building creative consistency. Here's some food for thought. Where would Elton John be if he wrote your song in the 70s and then never sat down to the piano again? Or what about Kerry Washington? If she decided that she was done with acting after the first season of Scandal. I would argue the most integral part of your creative journey is not actually your creative insights, but it's your consistency and commitment to have those feelings of self-doubt, but to choose to show up because no matter your experience or education or your current job title, you are a creator. If you create, you're a creator. Today, we're going to learn from Sarah Dudley, a professional violinist in New York City, what years of creative consistency looks like. This girl never freaking quits. Over time, her craft may have changed from violin to viola, but she still keeps making music. She may take breaks, but the music is a part of her life, her communication style, and her identity. Sarah and I also talked about being a musician, making music accessible, and about the struggle. The struggle to be creative is real. It's tough to feel like you're making a difference through the way you choose to express yourself. As an office working person, I often think, man, I'm just so not creative. But you might have more in common with an artist than you think. Sarah details that she, a full-time musician, more often than not doesn't feel creative. Now, feeling creative and being creative are two different things. The most important factor in your creative journey is consistency. You've got to keep coming back to what you love to do, even when you feel totally uncreative. At the end of the episode, we talk about some practical things you can do to work on building consistency in a creative practice. And I'm also gonna suggest a weekly creative challenge, and I bet you can guess what this one is gonna be. So let's get into it with Sarah D. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. We go way back, don't we? Do you want to tell the listeners how we know each other? Sure. Um, I moved in to the house right next door when I was in third grade. So however old you are when you're in third grade. And <laughs> that's where it all started. So we've known each other for many, 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 many years. <laughs> One too many. No, I'm kidding. More, not even enough yet. <laughs> So, Sarah, could you introduce yourself to all of our guests? I'm Sarah, and I live in New York City. I am a violist and a violinist. I teach privately, and I also teach at a private school in my neighborhood, and I perform. Can you tell me about how your musical talents were fostered as a young person? So I come from a musical family. My parents are both musicians and educators. My dad is a pianist and my mom is a vocalist. And when I was about five, my dad asked if I wanted to start violin lessons. And so I did. And I have been playing ever since. I took a couple of years off from like ages 10 to 15, where I did figure skating instead. I remember that. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. But then I came back. I came back to music. And that's what I've been doing ever since. <laughs> 
Okay, so when you were a kid, did you get to choose what instrument you were interested in playing? Yeah, so my dad was the one that suggested violin, and I don't know why. And that was just kind of what I stuck with until about six years ago. And that's when I made the switch from violin to viola. And that was after I did my undergrad in violin performance. Right after is when I rented a viola and liked it so much that I never went back to violin. Hmm. So for those listeners, such as myself, who are ding-dongs and don't know the difference, can you tell us sort of what the difference between those two instruments is and what it is about the viola that made you so interested in wanting to to switch instruments altogether? So the viola is like a violin. You hold it the same way, you play it the same, but it's larger. And it sort of sits range-wise between the violin and the cello. So we do not have a high E string like the violin. And instead, we have a low C string like the cello. And, you know, I had some good friends that are violists. And I was really jealous of the repertoire that they got to play. So initially, that's why I decided to experiment And turns out the sound quality of the instrument just fits my personality a lot better. It's like lower and a little more moody, which (laughs) maybe that's how I describe myself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But there was always kind of a disconnect with violin. It's hard to describe, but I do feel like viola is much more Sarah, if that makes sense. (laughs) Interesting. So are there any stereotypes in the music community for like a violin player versus a viola player? And do you feel like you fit those or like no? Well, yeah. I mean, there's always viola jokes. Uh-oh. Like, <laughs> yeah, violas. I don't know where this came from, but we have a reputation of being kind of like second rate violinists, which is not true at all. <laughs> But we're a middle voice. In in musical terms, our role is different than the violin. Violin will typically get the melody, and viola is like a supportive role. And that's kind of an art in and of itself. And that's something that, you know, I'm still getting settled into. So you've had a lot of experience in playing in orchestras and just playing with other musicians. Mm-hmm. What is that experience like? Is that like where you are in the zone and your favorite thing or do you more enjoy just solo play? Well, yeah, I I definitely like orchestral playing a lot. There's something really exciting about being in a room with 60 plus other musicians and you're all coming together to produce something. I also really like chamber music a lot and spent four and a half months last year doing that on a cruise ship which was, oh yeah, as you know, <laughs> a wild time. <laughs> Solo playing is not not my favorite. I had to do a lot of that in in school, <laughs> but I don't I don't really put on a lot of. Um, solo recitals now that I'm out of school it's more collaborative I feel like the word recital is the most like anxiety inducing word (laughs) in the English language I remember as a kid you'd have dance recitals I remember you and your sister going to recitals for music and I would be like oh that sounds so nerve-wracking everybody's looking at you yeah it's terrifying um (laughs) (laughs) I have crippling performance anxiety it's Mm. something I've struggled with in different phases of my career and as an adult it's just yeah I still struggle with it especially when it comes to solo playing which 
you know, that's a different skill too. There are people that build their careers off of being soloists, whether that's doing recitals or performing solos, like concertos with orchestras. Um, but that's not really the route that I've gone. And yeah, the struggle is real, though. <laughs> Do you feel like being in more of that community orchestral aspect helps with that anxiety and being around other people and other musicians everybody doing their thing? Or not really, do you still experience it the same? Yeah, there's definitely safety in numbers, but there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that too. You know, you don't want to be the weak link in your section and you don't want to be the one sticking out like a sore thumb or not blending with your section. So just because you're with other people doesn't mean you get to show up and kind of wing it. Like you definitely still have to come 100% prepared. But yeah, there is definitely something comforting about being on stage with a lot of other people too. <laughs> is there anything that you do that helps you sort of uh, combat your performance anxiety or not really? You just have to like feel it every time? You know, I've talked a lot with my parents about it, with colleagues, with teachers, and we all experience it to some degree. Even professional soloists get nervous. For me, I think it hasn't gotten easier the more performing I've done necessarily. You know, some people will say, well, you've just got to do it over and over and over again, and then it gets easier. For me, that hasn't been the case. But the more I put myself out there, the more predictable my response to the anxiety is. And so I know what to expect. I know how I'm going to be feeling the day of two hours before, 20 minutes before I go on stage. And there's something about the predictability of it that takes a little bit of the edge off. And, you know, the other thing too is the more performing you do, you're going to have a lot of really unsuccessful performances. That's just kind of part of it. Things that, you know, are small mistakes ranging from that to like total train wreck. And at the end of the day, you survive it. It's just music. <laughs> and then there are a lot of times that it goes really well. And so I think when you have all of those experiences under your belt, you realize like it's not life or death. Like my, my teacher would say, it's only viola. Like, why do we act like it's going to kill us? It's just viola. <laughs> <laughs> it's just viola. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sarah, I like what you said about understanding your response. I think that can carry over to a lot of other creative expressions or even just public speaking and things like that where other people feel that anxiety. It may not get better as you do it, but at least you'll know how your body's going to be feeling, uh, what you're going to need to do after. And So you talked about predictability. And interestingly enough, you did something that was pretty unpredictable <laughs> that you already mentioned, which was going on the cruise. So can you tell me about, I guess, as an artist, why you made that decision to do something that was very different from your like regular, how you're showing up and performing in your career? What kind of motivated you to, to do something, uh, not risky, but something different and new? Yeah, well, so just some background. This was a program, well, not program, a series, I guess, on Holland America ships called Lincoln Center Stage. And they had a piano quartet. So I was in a piano quartet. And I took the job because I had a couple of colleagues that had done it and enjoyed their time. 
And I also took it because I knew it was going to be a ton of performing. And I just wanted the experience. And it was a steady gig. I was just finishing up my master's degree. So there were some just timing things that made sense for me. I didn't really, I mean, I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. I was placed in a group randomly. So me and the other three players, we did not know each other before. And we got together for two weeks to rehearse in New York. And it was a lot of music. And we immediately had to kind of figure out how to work together, how to play together And there were a lot of challenges that came along with that. There were a lot of really cool things that we were able to achieve as a group. But it really tested, I think, my limits. I don't know if I want to say like creatively necessarily, but I was definitely pushed outside my comfort zone. And I kind of in a situation where it's like, all right, you've got to play with these three other people for four and a half months. What shape is that going to take? And um, it took many shapes. We'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> was it like just getting to know their style or their personalities? All, all of it. Because oh with chamber music in particular, it's so delicate, the interworkings. You're bringing your own individual talent and style to the table. And yet you've got to make it work with three other people. And you're all interpreting what's on the page, too. So it, it's a tall order, especially with, with strangers. <laughs> you know, in a lot of other professional piano quartets or string quartets, you know, finding that balance of personnel takes a long time. And people will audition and they have trial periods. And we didn't have any of that. It was just like, here you go. Play well together. Wow. The end. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. Well, sounds yeah. like you did a great job. Did you enjoy it overall, the experience at the end? Or were you like, I'm out of here? <laughs> um, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot about myself as a person, about myself as a musician. I gained a lot of confidence coming out of that because, you know, at times it was really trying. And yeah, I'm glad I did it. Okay, Sarah, you've mentioned something so far a couple times that I wanted to see if you could define for myself in the audience, you said chamber music. So can you tell me what that is exactly? Yeah, so chamber music is like a small group of musicians. So like a string quartet or a string trio or a piano trio or a piano quartet or quintet. Pretty much, I mean, even duos you could call chamber music. Chambers. Sounds like locked in the dungeon or something. (laughs) I can think of all the old period pieces I've watched with like Queen Elizabeth and like, I'm sure there was a chamber involved with some musicians, (laughs) the musician dungeon. (laughs) Okay. We've talked about how there's been some performance anxiety and how you've done a lot of different schooling, your undergrad, your grad school to study violin and viola. Why, why did you stick with it? Why did you not give up? Well, There have been a lot of times in my adult years now that I have seriously contemplated walking away from music. And I sometimes still have that sort of internal dialogue with myself. This is a really tough career path. It's extremely competitive, especially in the city that I live where you've got the best of the best. 
the classical music scene is, I wouldn't say it's thriving. <laughs> we rely on a lot of older generations to support what we do. It's hard to engage young people in a really old and rather outdated art form that's historically been very, very exclusive and still is. And COVID, on top of all of that, really did a number in my field. And some things have still not recovered, and it's not quite the same. So at this point, though, I've dedicated so much time to this and effort and energy that it would feel like a waste to walk away. And at the same time, you know, I also love, I love it. I love that there is no ceiling here. You can never reach the end. You could never play everything that there is to be played. It's limitless, really. And for my personality type, that's just, that works for me. So I guess that's the short answer. And that really wasn't that short, but. <laughs> I love that. I think I've definitely experienced similarities when I've studied Chinese in the past. There's been times when I really wanted to give up because it's really hard. And I mean, I haven't been studying it much lately, but when I was really studying it, um, yeah, that, that's another thing that drew me to it as well, because there's not a cap on how much you can learn and yeah, it makes you keep coming back yeah. for more. Yeah, for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> so you had mentioned that in general, in today's society, it can be troublesome to engage young people into classical music. Uh, you mentioned a lot of historical exclusivity that has occurred within the classical music scene. Is there any ways or anything that you can think of to engage young people in the classical music scene? How would you go about doing that? Or what kind of do you think needs to happen in society for there to be a revival, a renaissance of classical music? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And I think a lot of people are still trying to figure it out. Accessibility is a really big factor. And I think about that really and what that means in a place like New York, where, you know, we have the New York Phil, we have the Met Opera, um, we have two ballet companies here, and we have so many small orchestras that are comprised of freelancers like myself. So there are a lot of options, but for concerts at the Phil or the Met, they're expensive. You know, you have to have the means and it's a, you know, you make a whole night of it. And I think programming choices have a lot to do with it too. Like it's finding a balance between performing new works. There are lots of people that are actively composing right now and also still playing the favorites and the classics. And that's a really tricky balance. I think a lot of, you know, major orchestras in the country are trying to figure it out. And I think it's important to for musicians to bring music to other neighborhoods, not just expecting them to come to us. So yeah, it, it's, it's tricky though. Like for instance, I played a cool gig on Thursday. It was at a, a park in Harlem and it was a hip hop symphony. You know, they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And there's been a lot of performances throughout the summer here in the city. Many of them are free, which is great. But I think that's a good example of bringing an orchestra 
to an area that's probably not getting a lot of classical music, not in the park. And it's a hip hop orchestra on top of that. We had break dancers. Yeah, it was really cool. It was it was a really fun gig. And so little things like that, I think, can be really impactful. And yeah, I'm curious to see what direction things go in in the next 10, 15, 20 years. That's really interesting. That's cool because in a lot of ways, I feel like classical music and what rap is today is like kind of the opposite. They're at odds, whereas rap is the ultimate accessible type of music. A lot of people uh, can relate to it. And then more with classical, it's more like if you want to study that or um, even just like even appreciate it, I guess, you kind of have to Um, be more in the know and be more means to be able to study it. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you from The Russell. It's a historic East Nashville church transformed into a -a one-of-a-kind boutique hotel. So if you're looking for an example of creative reuse right here in Nashville, I would definitely recommend staying at The Russell. The Russell's mission is to give back to the Nashville community through their Rooms for Rooms program by donating a portion of each day to local nonprofits who are helping those experiencing homelessness. Visit RussellNashville.com to book your experience today. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, I know, too, growing up, your family and parents got me into jazz and Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. I I look fondly upon my childhood thinking about a lot of those singers, and I think I was really introduced to it through through your family, and it's it's just good music. It really is, yeah. It's funny because my parents are on the opposite end mm-hmm. of the spectrum, sort of, from what I perform. They're both classically trained, of course, but they exist in the jazz world now, and sometimes I get jealous of them why do you think it's more fun well because this is a creativity podcast i guess you could kind of dive into the creative differences between classical and jazz jazz is very structured people think that jazz musicians just go up and play whatever they want and to some degree yeah but it's within a structure classical musicians though we are trained to stay with what's on the page and you're kind of doing a disservice if you veer too far away from what's on the page. And so it's this really delicate line of interpretation and making your own stylistic choices and staying true to what you think the composer wanted. And it's something that I've been kind of thinking about in the days leading up to this conversation here, because I started to ask myself, well, you're in the arts as a profession, but are you really creative anymore? And Truthfully, I don't really feel very creative right now. And I talked with a friend about it a little bit. In my years of training, you're told what not to do over and over and over again. Like my process when I'm working on a new piece is to play through it myself. And then when you're in school, you bring it to your teacher in a lesson. And you know, typically whatever you brought in is riddled with mistakes, whether it's wrong notes, incorrect rhythms, or you're totally ignoring a dynamic marking, which is how loud or soft you should be playing. And over time, you know, your teacher helps you shape it and work it out. And it's often lost, I think, like some of the initial life that you were breathing into it. And then you do that over however many years of study. And it's like, well, who am I as a player? And with jazz, I think you're able to retain a little bit more of that sort of like fingerprint on who you are 
as a player because it's a lot of it is in the moment like i said it still revolves around structure but it's in a different realm than what i do thank you for sharing that sarah that sounds like a lot of rules when you think about creativity you think about freedom and no rules and so i definitely see what you're saying i think the challenge for myself and and the discovery that still needs to be made is maybe how to reconnect with my identity Mm. as a player Mm. i mean i have my own individual sound as a player Mm. but when it comes to how i approach repertoire whether it's solo or chamber music maybe not so much orchestral and maybe i just need to be a little not more intentional because it makes it seem like I'm not now, but telling people to stop telling you what to do. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just something that a lot of classical musicians kind of mm-hmm. struggle with. Yeah. I don't know. It's tricky. <laughs> and I think too, this podcast is definitely born out of a space of not having that creativity and like struggling to be creative and find the time and figure out how to break through a lot of the either walls that we put upon ourselves or the ones that society gives us or our profession gives us. And it's really good to hear other people, even if you've committed yourself to an art, you can still struggle to be creative. Uh, And it's just about like being gentle with yourself and uh, loving yourself and knowing that the desire to be creative is still inside you. I think that means you're a creative person because it's still there and it's dying to get out. Um, and it will happen, you know, it just, just be gentle with yourself as that, as that comes out. So you're creative in my book, Sarah. <laughs> oh, thank you. I think that's really good advice. And I think we all have to remind ourselves to be gentle and patient and kind and, and mm-hmm. that fosters totally. creativity. You know, it's like if you're constantly judging yourself and, you know, putting the walls up, you're already making it Mm -hmm. an uncomfortable space to exist in, whether it's in your own mind or in the practice room or when you're sitting down to do a craft or paint or draw. And yeah, it all starts, Mm. you know, up here in our head. Yeah. And creativity and mental health are like pretty like well linked. Working on your creative endeavors does help you to get to that space to be kinder to yourself and relax. So it's like a cycle. It's like if you're not being creative, then maybe you're not as kind to yourself, then maybe you're not as creative. Yeah, for sure. I because what I do is playing music is like a passion, but it's also my profession. It's kind of woven into me. Like I am one with what I do. There's not a lot of separation Mm. there. So when you're feeling unsuccessful or not creative or things aren't clicking, it's easy to fall into that cycle of feeling like I lose my worth as a person along with it. And that's a really dangerous place to be. And that's kind of one of the struggles for me, Mm -hmm. I guess, as a person is there's not a lot of separation between my work and who I am. I don't really like clock in, clock out. Mm. It's my relationship with my work is a lot different than I think maybe what some other professions are like. Mm. And it's so personal. Yeah, it can get pretty heady. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a good reminder too, because I think also myself being sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, like the work that I do every day is not my creative endeavor or my art. They're totally different and they're separate worlds to me. But for you, it's one and it's what you enjoy it's what you love and it's also your identity um, so I think mm-hmm. it's good for both of us to see what the other's world 
looks like. So sometimes I think, oh, it must be so nice to do your passion all the time, 100%. But then, yeah, Sarah's like shaking her head. <laughs> um, <laughs> But then also, I don't know, I think it's good for folks who are doing their passion to see there's benefits about having those worlds separate, but also it can be the struggle to try to reach the creative world. Okay, what has been the hardest and the best parts about playing your instruments? The hardest part, I don't, gosh, I don't even know. It's like all of it's hard. <laughs> Believing in yourself on a consistent enough basis to keep going when you feel like you're not making progress and in fact you probably are and the good thing i mean the thing i i like the most i guess about playing is it's my safe place when i'm feeling really badly or feeling unsure even though my livelihood is riding on my skill i can still take my instrument out in my bedroom and just play whatever I want for me. And it still to this day has some healing quality to it that keeps me coming back. Oh, now that's creative dirt right there. <laughs> <laughs> the healing quality of the music you get to do on your own. And that too is like you had mentioned some of the rigidity in classical music, but you know, at the end of the day, you can go in your room play what you want to and that's freedom and that. yeah. if you could give any advice to a listener who has a creative passion and has worked on it for a really long time and is thinking of giving up do you have any advice for them or would you just say give up <laughs> no don't give up absolutely not i think whether you're creative professionally or or not sometimes we fall into the trap of just relying on creativity to flow when we're when we happen to be inspired or we happen to be motivated or we happen to have success with whatever we're doing and i think it's a good challenge to continue pushing through when those factors aren't in place and i think in fact that can produce some of your best work whatever that might be you know some things are are worth fighting for and i i think Typically, with whatever you're pursuing creatively, you're there because it's worth it to you. And the temptation is often strong to walk away when it's not going well. But if you can see yourself through it, or perhaps you're going to shift directions completely, and that's what needs to happen, don't walk away. That's excellent advice. I read the book Atomic Habits. And in that book, at the very end, there they say the biggest difficulty that people have with building a habit is that they can't accept the boredom of doing that thing every single day or every single time they need to do it. They get tired, they, you know, get bored. But something that you have done, which is exceptional, and very few people do it is that you stick with it, stick with it, and then you stick with it. Again. <laughs> so that's really cool. And I think we can learn a lot from your commitment. Okay, and last question for you. Why do you create? And in this case, probably why do you play? I play because it's a way in which I can communicate feelings that words can't. I create for me because it's a good outlet for me. Yeah, I guess I can say things through my instrument that I can't say with words. And that's a cool thing about music. That is cool. I love that. Thank you, Sarah. This is going to be a good one. We had some good Thanks, Honor.
let's talk about the eight lessons that we learned from Sarah today on creative consistency. So number one, she told us about the portability of the violin. She said she can pull it out and play it immediately. She doesn't have to go to Joanne's and, you know, buy these markers and those pipe cleaners. So you can build consistency in your craft by making it easier for yourself to do it on a very basic level. So if it's writing you love, keep a notebook in your purse. If it's knitting, keep needles in your glove compartment. Make it easy for you to do your craft. Number two, take risks in your creative field to keep your craft interesting. For example, Sarah taught us how to take risks when she told us about going on a cruise and playing the violin there. Um, you don't have to sit down at the same place and do the same thing every single time. Keep it interesting. Variety is the spice of life. Number three is fall in love with the mountain. That's what I like to call it. So by this, I mean falling in love with that insurmountable challenge of mastering your craft that is ahead of you. So love the idea that you have so much to learn and just enjoy that quest for getting better and better at that art that you love to do. Number four is de-identify your creative success from your self-worth. This one's important. <laughs> Number five, know that creative failure is a part of the process and recognize that when you feel like you're not making progress, like Sarah told us, you probably are. And when in doubt, remember, it's only viola. And by that, it's just a craft. It's just the thing that you love to do. Remember that you love it. Number six, last but not least, don't wait to be inspired to create. Push through when you don't feel creative because feeling and being creative are two different things. Being creative is always way more valuable than feeling creative. All right, go get them creatives, you got this. And on this week's Creative Dirt Challenge, you know what it's gonna be. It's listen to some classical music. I asked Sarah who some of her current favorite classical music artists are, and she said this. I'm a really big fan of this guy, Arnold Bax, B-A-X. I really enjoy his fourth and fifth symphonies. And then I also recently discovered this woman, Ruth Gipps, G-I-P-P-S. She wrote some really cool stuff for her. And anytime I come across a female composer from, you know, like the 20th century, I'm like, yes. All right, well, thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget, keep creating, and I'm rooting for you.